Chapter 18 of On Secret Service Detective Mystery Stories Based on Real Cases Solved by Government Agents by William Nelson Taft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 30,000 Yards of Silk. I'd sure like to lead the life of one of those fictional detective heroes muttered Bill Quinn, formerly of the United States Secret Service, as he tossed aside the last volume of crime stories that had come to his attention. Nothing to do but trail murderers and find the person who lifted the diamond necklace and stuff of that kind. They never have a case that isn't interesting, or, for that matter, one in which they aren't successful. Must be a great life, "'But aren't the detective stories of real life interesting and oftentimes exciting?' I inquired, adding that those which Quinn had already told me indicated that the career of a government operative was far from being deadly monotonous. "'Some of them are,' he admitted, "'but many of them drag along for months or even years, sometimes petering out for pure lack of evidence.' Those, of course, are the cases you never hear of, the ones where Uncle Sam's men fall down on the job. Oh, yes, they're fallible, all right. They can't solve every case, any more than a doctor can save the life of every patient he attends. But the percentage, though high, doesn't approach the success of your Sherlock Holmeses and your thinking machines, your Grices and Sweetwaters and Lecoqs. How is it, then, that every story you've told dealt with the success of a government agent, never with his failure? Quinn smiled reminiscently for a moment. Then, what do doctors do with their mistakes? he asked. They bury em, and that's what any real detective will do. Try to forget except for hoping that some day he'll run up against the man who tricked him. Again, most of the yarns I've told you revolved around some of the relics of this room, waving his hand to indicate the walls of his library. And these are all mementos of successful cases. There's no use in keeping the other kind. Failures are too common and brains too scarce. That bit of silk up there. Oh, yes, I interrupted. The one that formed part of Alice Norcross's wedding dress. And figured in one of the most sensational plots to defraud the government that was ever uncovered, added Quinn. If Ezra Marks hadn't located that shipment, I wouldn't have had that piece of silk, and there wouldn't be any story to tell. So, you see, it's really a circle after all. Marks, Quinn went on, was one of the few men connected with any branch of the government organizations who really lived up to the press agent notices of the detectives you read about. In the first place, he looked like he might have stepped out of a book, big and long-legged and lanky. A typical Yankee, with all of the New Englander's shrewdness and common sense. If you turned Ezra loose on a case, you could be sure that he wouldn't sit down and try to work it out by deduction. 
Neither would he plunge in and attempt by sheer bravado and gunplay to put the thing over. He'd mix the two methods and, more often than not, come back with the answer. Then, too, Marx had the very happy faculty of drawing assignments that turned out to be interesting. Maybe it was luck, but more than likely it was because he followed plans that made him so, preferring to wait until he had all the strings to a case and then stage a big roundup of the people implicated. You remember the case of the Englishman who smuggled uncut diamonds in the bowl of his pipe and the one you wrote under the title of Wali and the Flower of Heaven? Well, those were typical of Ezra's methods. The first was almost entirely analytical, the second mainly gunplay, plus a painstaking survey of the field he had to cover. But when Marx was notified that it was up to him to find out who was running big shipments of valuable silks across the Canadian border, without the formality of visiting the custom house and making the customary payments, he found it advisable to combine the two courses. It was through a wholesale dealer in silks in Seattle, Washington, that the custom service first learned of the arrival of a considerable quantity of this valuable merchandise, offered through certain underground channels at a price which clearly labeled it as smuggled. Possibly the dealer was peeved because he didn't learn of the shipment in time to secure any of it. But his reasons for calling the affair to the attention of the Treasury Department don't really matter. The main idea was that the silk was there, that it hadn't paid duty, and that someone ought to find out how it happened. When a second and then a third shipment was reported, Marx was notified by wire to get to Seattle as fast as he could, and there to confer with the collector of the port. It wasn't until after he had arrived that Ezra knew what the trouble was, for the story of the smuggled silk hadn't penetrated as far south as San Francisco, where he had been engaged in trying to find a cargo of smuggled coolies. "'Here's a sample of the silk,' announced the collector of the port at Seattle, producing a piece of very heavy material, evidently of foreign manufacture. "'Beyond the fact that we've spotted three of the shipments, and know where to lay our hands on them if wanted, I've got to admit that we don't know a thing about the case. The department, of course, doesn't want us to trace the silk from this end. The minute you do that, you lay yourself open to all sorts of legal tangles and delays, to say nothing of giving the other side plenty of time to frame up a case that would sound mighty good in court. Besides, I haven't enough men to handle the job in the short space of time necessary. So you'll have to dig into it and find out who got the stuff in and how. Then we'll attend to the fences who've been handling it here. The old game of passing the buck, thought Ezra, as he fingered the sample of silk meditatively. I'll do the work and they'll get the glory. Oh, well. Any idea of where the shipments came from? he inquired. There's no doubt but that it's of Japanese manufacture, which, of course, 
would appear to point to a shipping conspiracy of some nature. But I hardly think that's true here. Already eighteen bolts of silk have been reported in Seattle, and, as you know, that's a pretty good-sized consignment. You couldn't stuff em into a pillbox or carry em inside a walking stick, like you could diamonds. Whoever's handling this job is doing it across the border, rather than via the shipping route. No chance of a slip-up in your information, is there, Chief? Ezra inquired anxiously. I'd hate to start combing the border and then find that the stuff was being slipped in through the port. No, and the collector of customs was positive in his reply. I'm not taking a chance on that tip. I know what I'm talking about. My men have been watching the shipping like hawks. Ever since that consignment of antique ivory got through last year, we've gone over every vessel with a microscope, probing the mattresses and even pawing around in the coal bins. I'm positive that there isn't a place big enough to conceal a yard of silk that the boys haven't looked into, to say nothing of eighteen bolts. Besides, added the collector, the arrival of the silk hasn't coincided with the arrival of any of the ships from Japan, not by any stretch of the imagination. All right, I'll take up the trail northward then, replied Marks. Don't be surprised if you fail to hear from me for a couple of months or more. If Washington inquires, tell them that I'm up on the border somewhere and let it go at that. "'Going to take anybody with you?' "'Not a soul, except maybe a guide that I'll pick up when I need him. "'If there is a concerted movement to ship silk across the line, "'and it appears that there is, "'the more men you have working with you, "'the less chance there is for success. "'Border runners are like moonshiners. "'They're not afraid of one man, "'but if they see a posse, they run for cover and keep out of sight until the storm blows over, and there isn't one chance in a thousand of finding them meanwhile. You've got to play them, just like you would a fish, so the next time you hear from me, you will know that I've either landed my sharks or that they've slipped off the hook. It was about a month later that the little town of Northport, up in the extreme northeastern corner of Washington, awoke to find a stranger in its midst. Strangers were something of a novelty in Northport, and this one, a man named Marks, who stated that he was prospecting for some good lumber, caused quite a bit of talk for a day or two. Then the town gossips discovered that he was not working in the interest of a large company, as had been rumored, but slowly on his own hook, so they left him severely alone. Besides, it was the height of the logging season, and there was too much work to be done along the Columbia River to worry about strangers. Marks hadn't taken this into consideration when he neared the eastern part of the state, but he was just as well pleased. If logs and logging served to center the attention of the natives elsewhere, so much the better. It would give him greater opportunity for observation and possibly the chance to pick up some information. Up to this time, 
his trip along the border had been singularly uneventful and lacking in results. In fact, it was practically a toss-up with him whether he would continue on into Idaho and Montana, on the hope that he would find something there, or go back to Seattle and start fresh. However, he figured that it wouldn't do any harm to spend a week or two in the neighborhood of the Columbia, and, as events turned out, it was a very wise move. Partly out of curiosity, and partly because it was in keeping with his self-assumed character of lumber prospector, Marx made a point of joining the gangs of men who worked all day, and sometimes long into the night, keeping the river clear of log jams and otherwise assisting in the movement of timber downstream. Like everyone who views these operations for the first time, he marveled at the dexterity of the loggers who perched upon the treacherous, slippery trunks with as little thought for danger as if they had been crossing a country road. But their years of familiarity with the current and the logs themselves had given them a sense of balance which appeared to inure them to peril. Nor was this ability to ride logs confined wholly to the men. Some of the girls from the nearby country often worked in with the men, handling the lighter jobs and attending to details which did not call for the possession of a great amount of strength. One of these, Marx noted, was particularly proficient in her work, Apparently there wasn't a man in Northport who could give her points in a log-riding, and the very fact that she was small and wiry provided her with a distinct advantage over men who were twice her weight. Apart from her grace and beauty, there was something extremely appealing about the girl, and Ezra found himself watching her time after time as she almost danced across the swirling bark-covered trunks hardly seeming to touch them as she moved. The girl was by no means oblivious to the stranger's interest in her ability to handle at least a part of the men's work. She caught his eye the very first day he came down to the river, and after that, whenever she noted that he was present, she seemed to take a new delight in skipping lightly from log to log, lingering on each just long enough to cause it to spin dangerously and then leaping to the next. But one afternoon she tried the trick once too often. Either she miscalculated her distance, or a sudden swirl of the current carried the log for which she was aiming out of her path, for her foot just touched it, slipped, and, before she could recover her balance, she was in the water, surrounded by logs that threatened to crush the life out of her at any moment. Startled by her cry for help, three of the lumbermen started toward her, but the river, like a thing alive, appeared to thwart their efforts by opening up a rift in the jam on either side, leaving a gap too wide to be leaped, and a current too strong to be risked by men who were hampered by their heavy hobnailed shoes. Marks, who had been watching the girl, had his coat off almost as soon as she hit the water. An instant later he had discarded his shoes and had plunged in, breasting the river with long overhand strokes that carried him forward at an almost unbelievable speed. Before the men on the logs knew what was happening, 
The operative was beside the girl, using one hand to keep her head above water and the other to fend off the logs which were closing in from every side. "'Quick!' he called. "'A rope! A—' But the trunk of a tree, striking his head a glancing blow, cut short his cry and forced him to devote every atom of his strength to remaining afloat until assistance arrived. After an interval which appeared to be measuring hours, rather than seconds, a rope splashed within reach and the pair were hauled to safety. The girl, apparently unhurt by her drenching, shook herself like a wet spaniel and then turned to where Marks was seated, trying to recover his breath. "'Thanks,' she said, extending her hand. "'I don't know who you are, stranger, but you're a man.' "'It wasn't anything to make a fuss about,' returned Ezra, rising and turning suspiciously red around the ears, for it was the first time that a girl had spoken to him in that way for more years than he cared to remember. Then, with the Vermont drawl that always came to the surface when he was excited or embarrassed, he added, "'It was worth getting wet to have you speak like that.' This time it was the girl who flushed, and with a palpable effort to cover her confusion, she turned away, stopping to call back over her shoulder, "'If you'll come up to Dad's place tonight, I'll see that you're properly thanked.' "'Dad's place?' repeated Ezra to one of the men nearby. "'Where's that?' "'She means her stepfather's house up the river,' replied the lumberman. "'You can't miss it. Just this side of the border. Ask anybody where old man Peterson lives.' Though the directions were rather vague, Marks started up the river shortly before sunset, and found but little difficulty in locating the big house, half bungalow and half cabin, where Peterson and his stepdaughter resided in company with half a dozen foremen of lumber gangs, and an Indian woman who had acted as nurse and chaperone and cook and general servant ever since the death of the girl's mother a number of years before. While he was still stumbling along, trying to pierce the gloom which settled almost instantly after sunset, Marks was startled to see a white figure rise suddenly before him and to hear a feminine voice remark, I wondered if you'd come. Didn't you know I would? replied Ezra. Your spill in the river had me scared stiff for a moment, but it was a mighty lucky accident for me. At the girl's suggestion, they seated themselves outside, being joined before long by Peterson himself, who, with more than a trace of his Slavic ancestry apparently in his voice, thanked Marks for rescuing his daughter. It was when the older man left them and the girl's figure was outlined with startling distinctness by the light from the open door that Ezra received a shock which brought him to earth with a crash. In the semi-darkness he had been merely aware that the girl was wearing a dress which he would have characterized as something white but once he saw her standing in the center of the path of light which streamed from the interior of the house, there could be no mistake. The dress was of white silk. More than that, 
It was made from material which Marks would have sworn had been cut from the same bolt as the sample which the collector had shown him in Seattle. "'What's the matter, Mr. Marks?' inquired the girl, evidently noting the surprise which Ezra was unable completely to suppress. "'Seen a ghost or something?' "'I thought for a moment I had,' was the operative's reply, as he played for time. "'It must be your dress. My, my sister had one just like it once. "'It's rather pretty, isn't it? In spite of the fact that I made it myself, out of some silk that Dad, that Dad, brought home. Ezra thought it best to change the subject, and as soon as he could find the opportunity said good night, with a promise to be on hand the next day to see that the plunge in the river wasn't repeated. But the next morning he kept as far away from the girl, Fay Peterson, as he could, without appearing to make a point of the matter. He had thought the whole thing over from every angle, and his conclusion was always the same. The Petersons were either hand-in-glove with the gang that was running the silk across the border, or they were doing the smuggling themselves. The lonely cabin, the proximity to the border, the air of restraint which he had noted the previous evening, based principally upon the fact that he had not been invited indoors, the silk dress, all were signs which pointed at least to a knowledge of the plot to beat the customs. More than that, when Marks commenced to make some guarded inquiries about the family of the girl whom he had saved from drowning, he met with a decidedly cool reception. "'Old man Peterson has some big logging interests in these parts,' declared the most loquacious of his informants and they say he's made a pile of money in the last few months. Some say it's timber, and others say it's, well, it ain't nobody's concern how a man makes a living in these parts, so long as he behaves himself. "'Isn't Peterson behaving himself?' asked Ezra. "'Stranger,' was the reply, "'it ain't always healthy to pry into another man's affairs. Better be satisfied with going to see the girl.' That's more than anybody round here's allowed to do. So there was an air of mystery about the Peterson house after all, Marx thought. It hadn't been his imagination or an idea founded solely upon the sight of the silk dress. The next fortnight found the operative a constant and apparently a welcome visitor at the house up the river. But, hint as he might, he was never asked indoors, a fact that made him all the more determined to see what was going on. While he solaced himself with the thought that his visits were made strictly in the line of duty, that his only purpose was to discover Peterson's connection with the smuggled silk, Ezra was unable entirely to stifle another feeling, something which he hadn't known since the old days in Vermont, when the announcement of a girl's wedding to another man had caused him to leave home and seek his fortunes in Boston. Faye Peterson was pretty. There was no denying that fact. Also, she was very evidently prepossessed in favor of the man who had saved her from the river. But this fact, 
instead of soothing Marx's conscience, only irritated it the more. Here he was on the verge of making love to a girl, really in love with her as he admitted to himself, and at the same time planning and hoping to send her stepfather to the penitentiary. He had hoped that the fact that Peterson was not her own father might make things a little easier for him, but the girl had shown in a number of ways that she was just as fond of her foster parent as she would have been of her own. "'He's all the daddy I ever knew,' she said one night, "'and if anything ever happened to him, I think it would drive me crazy,' which fell far short of easing Ezra's mind, though it strengthened his determination to settle the matter definitely. The next evening that he visited the Petersons, he left a little earlier than usual, and only followed the road back to Northport sufficiently far to make certain that he was not being trailed. Then, retracing his steps, he approached the house from the rear, his soft moccasins moving silently across the ground, his figure crouched until he appeared little more than a shadow between the trees. Just as he reached the clearing which separated the dwelling from the woods, he stumbled and almost fell. His foot had caught against something which felt like the trunk of a fallen tree, but which moved with an ease entirely foreign to a log of that size. Puzzled, Marks waited until a cloud which had concealed the moon had drifted by, and then commenced his examination. Yes, it was a log, and a big one, still damp from its immersion in the river. But it was so light that he could lift it unaided, and it rang to a rap from his knuckles. The end which he first examined was solid, but at the other end the log was a mere shell, not more than an inch of wood remaining inside the bark. It was not until he discovered a round plug of wood a stopper which fitted precisely into the open end of the log, that the solution of the whole mystery dawned upon him. The silk had been shipped across the border from Canada inside the trunks of trees, hollowed out for the purpose. Wrapping the bolts in oiled silk would keep them perfectly waterproof, and the plan was so simple as to be impervious to detection, save by accident. Emboldened by his discovery, Marks slipped silently across the cleared space to the shadow of the house, and thence around to the side, where a few cautious cuts of his bowie knife opened a peephole in the shutter which covered the window. Through this he saw what he had hoped for, yet feared to find. Peterson and three of his men packing bolts of white silk in boxes for reshipment. What was more, he caught snatches of their conversation which told him that another consignment of the smuggled goods was due from trail just across the border within the week. Retreating as noiselessly as he had come, Marks made his way back to Northport, where he wrote two letters, or rather a letter and a note. The first, addressed to the sheriff, directed that personage to collect a posse and report to Ezra Marks of the Customs Service on the second day following. This was forwarded by special messenger, but Marks pocketed the note 
and slipped it cautiously under the door of the Peterson house the next evening. "'It's a fifty-fifty split,' he consoled his conscience. "'The government gets the silk, and the Petersons get their warning. I don't suppose I'll get anything but the devil for not landing them.' The next morning, when the sheriff and his posse arrived, they found only an empty house but in the main room were piled boxes containing no less than 30,000 yards of white silk, valued at something over $100,000. On top of the boxes was an envelope addressed to Ezra Marks, Esquire, and within it a note which read, "'I don't know who you are, Mr. Customs Officer, but you're a man.' There was no signature but the writing was distinctly feminine. "'And was that all Marks ever heard from her?' I asked when Quinn paused. "'So far as I know,' said the former operative. "'Of course, Washington never heard about that part of the case. They were too well satisfied with Ezra's Hall and the incoming cargo, which they also landed, to care much about the Petersons.' So the whole thing was entered on Marx's record precisely as he had figured it, a fifty-fifty split. You see, even government agents aren't always completely successful, especially when they're fighting Cupid as well as crooks. End of chapter 18